Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday that we can gather together under the means of grace to fellowship and to pray, to worship, to sit under the word that our minds may be renewed by your truth of your word. And Lord, as we open up the scriptures today, we want to understand, we want to believe, and Lord, we want to obey whatever it is that you've said. We want to understand it, and we want it to sink into our hearts and minds. So we ask you for grace that that might happen. And Lord, we pray for the flock that's scattered around the world, that listens in on the Internet. We pray for their well-being, that they may be fed and protected, and Lord, uh, taken care of as your precious sheep. And we commit this Sunday morning to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Good morning. This morning we're in 2 Corinthians 11 again. We were on verse 22. 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 22. And we are in the so-called fool's speech, where Paul decides to become a fool because that's the kind of person the Corinthians are willing to listen to. And what he means, ironically, is that he's boasting, and it's a foolish thing to boast. But since the false teachers boast and the Corinthian church will listen to them, Paul's going to join in the foolish boasting. So we were on verse 22, and it says, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Now, this would be some pretty good indication that these false apostles called pseudo-apostles and super-apostles by Paul. Pseudo-apostles and super-apostles, they probably thought they were super, were Jewish because here it says, are they Hebrews, so am I. Evidently, that's what they were. And they were claiming special status because of their Jewishness. And that would be more evidence of our theory that they probably came from Jerusalem and claimed some special status. Ben, could you look up Romans 9, 4, and 5? They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Yes. So, in this case, they would be claiming special status because of their heritage or their lineage. Now, Paul talks about that, as we mentioned, in Philippians chapter 3. If you remember, he was a tribe of Benjamin and his status as a Pharisee and his zeal, claiming status from your uh, lineage. This, Garland points out that in the Hellenistic world, the idea of having noble parents or coming from nobility or from certain line was a main way of having status. And then you could say in most of the world, through most of history, it, wasn't, it isn't like what we love here in America. America likes the idea of coming from nowhere 
and rising to the top. You know, the, the, the Abe Lincoln story is like our national pride. And, and anytime we find uh, someone who's able to do that, that's a big deal. And we tend to say we don't believe in any kind of aristocracy. Because when the early uh, settlers came from Europe to America, they had had it with aristocracy and kings and people that ruled over others because of their lineage. And so this country was founded on the idea that you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and become something. But it wasn't really that way in most of the ancient world. Yes. Well, I think it's important to note that it wasn't that way in God's world either. In the kingdom of Israel, and in Israel in general, Levites had status because they were Levites and they had a heritage. And you could, to serve in a temple, if you were not a Levite, would get you stoned because God had commanded that you couldn't do that. That's true. If you had a, were coming in from the outside as a Gentile, you couldn't go in certain places because you were a Gentile. And God had commanded that only the sons of Aaron could be high priests, and that was genetic. And you could be the nicest guy in the world and be somebody else, but you would never be a high priest that was legitimate, and you could never be a king that was legitimate in God's eyes unless you're from the, descended from True the that. Davidic line. So what Paul is speaking here is it's more than just a social issue. He's saying there's a new covenant that has no status according to that because Jesus is coming to change the covenant itself. Uh-huh. The previous covenant that was being brought by these people in Jerusalem was wrong, and it was attacking the new covenant right. that was not based on status. But there was status in the old yeah, covenant. Yeah, there was. But, but that's what Paul considered all but dung in Philippians 3, now under the new covenant, because there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free in Christ. We, our status is found by the grace and mercy that God showed worthless, wretched sinners. Okay? I've been thinking a lot about that because I've spent two weeks now in, in Luke 15 um, just wanting to understand the sermon that I'm going to preach this morning the best I possibly can and spent a lot of time studying the parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the next one will be the parable of the product prodigal son. But the only status we had as one, one uh, I think it was Bailey that said this, the only thing that we did was we got lost. <laughs> That's what we added to the whole thing. We got lost. And the sheep had lost would just lay there and bleat. They were helpless and would lay there until they died unless the shepherd came and took them and carried them back out of the wilderness. So we are so blessed that God allowed us into his family. How many of you know we don't deserve to be here? Amen. We do not deserve to be here, but we were sons and daughters. And so our status that one gains under the new covenant comes from grace and mercy, not from the, your heritage. So they were claiming status through heritage And it showed one more way that they're false. Barnett says this. Two comments are are offered. First, from their viewpoint, they were ministers of Christ. They presented themselves as apostles of Christ, preaching Jesus, a gospel, 11.4, and they came bearing letters of commendation, presumably from Christians elsewhere. Yet from Paul's perspective, as a pioneer minister of the New Covenant, Theirs was another Jesus, a different gospel belonging to a now superseded dispensation. The content of their doctrine found no approval in Paul's eyes. 
And so Paul was very adamant in this epistle that he was a minister of the new covenant. And the new covenant made the old obsolete. The word obsolete is found in Hebrews when it discusses the old covenant. So they're claiming status based on Jewish heritage. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Um, He says, I speak as if insane. Um, Para, see, what's that word there? Paraphanon. Probably means beside your mind. I am more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Now, there's a difference of opinion about this litany of Paul's sufferings. Garland cites some Hellenistic sources from the Greco-Roman world where you had a veteran soldier giving a list like Paul has here showing this, this one that I was reading from Garland. This guy said, I was stabbed in the thigh this time. I was speared. I was shot with an arrow. <laughs> and he goes through this whole list of all the wounds and injuries he'd had in his various wars he'd been in. And it was a, a, a bragging list of his valor. So Garland thinks that you could look at Paul's list that way, and he calls himself insane. He says, look at all I went through for the gospel. But he really is not really boasting because this is his full speech. Now, Barnett, however, considers the, the, this a catalog of weaknesses, that all of his suffering was just more of his weakness, and he's just boasting in his weakness. I, okay, looking at those two opinions, I think I agree with Garland. And here's why. If Paul was boasting in his weaknesses, he wouldn't call himself insane for doing so. Because he does, he, he's willing to boast in his weakness. He says that later. Because when he's weak, that's when he's strong. And God's grace is perfected in weakness. So he says, I speak as if I'm insane. Then he tells all this stuff. So he probably considers this as a catalog of, of sufferings that he shows how much he did for the gospel. And how much he's a servant of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so then he's a fool for saying this. So I'm going to agree with Garland on this one. Now, this is the third list of hardships in this epistle. 4, 8 through 10 was a list of hardships, and um, 6, 4 through 10. And he was in labors, imprisonments, beaten, in danger. One of the reasons for that, of course, is that travel was so dangerous in the ancient world. Travel was a very dangerous thing. Here's what Garland says. Paul appeals to indisputable facts, but because boasting about such things has nothing to do with his ministry in Corinth and only serves to show his superiority in comparison to others, it is boasting according to the flesh and therefore foolish speech. Foolish speech. That's part of his full speech. Rich, could you look up 1 Corinthians 15.10? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. I like that verse a lot. He starts out 
by grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Then he says, well, I labored really hard, but then he goes back to grace. But not I, but the grace of God. So he, he did not intend to take credit for his hard labors, although it was true he did labor hard. But it was the grace of God that he'd even be willing to do so. You know, we really do give all the glory to God, or we should anyhow, shouldn't we? And it's really a very important Christian attitude that we realize that we didn't bring anything that God needed. He's just gracious to us. I kind of want to puncture my own ego here with this question, but I really am unclear. In the way I was raised, if you brag about anything, it's not a good thing. So I was raised to have sort of a false humility, you know, if you will. But... What I find now is uh, with other Christians that I work with, I kind of cringe when other, other Christians complain about their problems and stuff. And I kind of, again, this is false, what did I just say, false, false sincerity. I kind of cringe when other Christians talk about all the things they've survived but they still believe in God. And forgive me for being so human here in Sunday school. But the thing is, what is it I'm taking pride in? That's my question. What is it, a stiff upper lip or what is it? Um, when you would brag about overcoming obstacles. I would, well, I would just say there's nothing wrong with telling people the, about God's grace that help us to overcome problems, but we should give God the glory. Because... Paul is willing to say that like he did in Corinthians. He said, but by the grace of God, um, I, I was able to survive these things. And I, th- I think, really, we all have to say that. It's God's grace that pulls us through the very difficult and um, overwhelming things that happen. And I know that's the fact. If you look at it from a perspective of, look at this Paul, labors, imprisonments, beatings, you know, danger of death. You know, they stoned him. They took him out and thought he was dead. All these whippings. Honestly, I don't think anybody could, could look at that from the perspective of the future and say, oh, I could do that. <laughs> I don't know, just, you'd be crazy to think you could do that. But Paul was just a human being. He wasn't Superman. He was just a human being. And it's amazing what God's grace can do in an ordinary person. That's what we have to think. And if God allows us to get into that kind of circumstance, God's grace will keep us in the circumstance as well. Verse 24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Um, Josephus discusses this, and he considered it a disgraceful penalty. This is not mentioned in Acts, but there's more to Paul's life than what's recorded in Acts. Acts doesn't claim to be, you know, comprehensive. Uh, It doesn't tell everything that happened, but it tells some of the important things. The the Jews uh, would be the ones who would use the whipping, and 39 lashes were... Let's see, there's a passage in Deuteronomy. Dick, you want to go over to Dick? Look up Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 5. I thought I was safe on the far side of the room. (laughs) Okay, Deuteronomy 25, 1 through 5. Yep. 
If there is a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him 40 times, but no more, so that he does not beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother is not degraded in your eyes. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Okay, that's the beating is what I was interested in. Forty was the max. Forty was the max, so Paul got one short of the maximum um, five times. Um, Matthew ten seventeen predicted that this sort of thing would happen to disciples, that they'd be hauled in front of the people and beaten. Garland says this, the best guess is, is that it was for the serious offense of blasphemy. Why would they beat Paul? He says, for the best guess, it's for the serious offense of blasphemy when he proclaimed his faith in Christ, his altered understanding of Judaism with the inclusion of Gentiles in the people of God. According to the Mishnah, 36 sins, including blasphemy, warranted being cut off from the people without warning. But flogging... Um, averted both a harsher punishment in the hands of God and being cut off from the people. The key text reads, quote, this is from Mishnah, when he is scourged, he is thy brother. This principle may help clarify what Paul means when he said to the Jews, I became like the Jews, the wind of the Jews. So though under the law, I became as under the law, though I myself not under the law, so as the wind knows under the law. He allowed the synagogue to administer punishment in order to maintain his Jewish connections. If you didn't get that, let me explain it. All right. He should be cut off. All right. Mishnah was, uh, when they wrote down some of the oral traditions that had been handed down by the rabbis, and then Mishnah, you can get like in a book this size, and then Talmud takes, is like a whole wall of books. It's a bigger compilation of the various decisions the rabbis made over the years as they try to apply the law in various circumstances. That's what Mishnah... So Mishnah says that if somebody was a blasphemer, what they really deserve is to be cut off. In other words, you, you lose your status. You can't come to the synagogue. You're, we consider you a Gentile or a heathen. Be gone. But if you would accept... If you beat somebody instead, then you could keep them within Judaism. So the theory is that Paul allowed himself to be whipped so that he could keep his Jewish status and keep preaching to the Jews rather than being cut off and then they wouldn't have anything to do with him anymore. We don't know that to be a fact, but that's just one of the theories that the scholars have come up with in, in regard to this passage here. And then... Um, there's another thing about Mishnah here. The Mishnah tractate Makath, which corroborates Paul's 40 lashes minus one, nominates false witness as an offense for which this punishment was administered. On no less than five occasions, the apostle received this most severe beating permitted by Jewish scriptures, which Josephus called a most disgraceful, disgraceful penalty. Okay, and then in verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That one is mentioned in, the, in Acts. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and a day I spent in the deep. 
<laughs> he didn't claim it. <laughs> Forgot to claim his, his, his uh, blessings. According to uh, Barnett, in Roman, in Roman Colonia, the praetors were preceded in public by lictors who bore as symbols of authority bundles of elm or birch rods bound together, Latin fasces. By the way, that's how far back that goes. I have a coin. Uh, I have, a, I think it's like a little dime that I found that comes from the time of fascist Italy under Mussolini. And the symbol on the coin is a bundle of sticks. The fascists. Fascists. So the fascism comes from this bundle of sticks, and it goes all the way back to the first century, that idea. So no extra charge for a little history lesson here. <laughs> if I would have thought about it, I would have brought that coin. It's for show and tell. But a bundle of sticks. Okay, so they, the symbols of authority were bundles of birch rods bound together as instruments of punishment. At the, so that was the idea of fascism, that you, we control you and we will punish you. We will beat you. Okay. At the instruction of the praetor, the lictors would publicly beat malefactors to inflict summary and deterrent chastisement. Latin coercitio, or probably where we get our word coercion. As a Roman citizen, Paul ought not to have suffered this indignity, though there are examples where the rights of Roman citizens were disregarded in the matter. So Paul had been given that punishment. So he got the Jewish punishment of being whipped and the Roman punishment of being beaten with rods. So that's how popular the gospel was. <laughs> well, what did he do? What evil did he do? He preached the gospel. That's why he was being punished. He kept preaching the gospel, and he wouldn't deter. Now, I wanted to read something. Yeah, this one's funny. One of the things I like about this Garland from the New American Commentary is he has all kinds of information about the Greco-Roman world uh, and, and quotations from it. He's talking about this shipwreck, okay? Secundus, the silent philosopher, was asked in a dialogue with the Emperor Hadrian, what is a boat? His response was that a boat is a, quote, a sea-tossed object, a foundationless home, a well-crafted tomb, <laughs> a wooden cubicle, a flying prison, a confined fate, a plaything of the wind, sailing death, an open cage, uncertain safety, the prospect of death. So a boat is where you went if you wanted to die <laughs> out in the sea. Because, I mean, this was a, they, they didn't have the technology. And so these getting, and they didn't, obviously didn't have radar, didn't know what the weather was going to do, you know. And so they, get out, they go out in the sea, and they're at the mercy of the elements, and the boats didn't always hold up so well when they were pummeled by things out at sea. What is a sailor, Secundus replies? A neighbor of death. <laughs> okay, so the sea is where you went out to die. And even the Romans thought that. And so here, um, Paul, we only have one account of shipwreck in Acts, and that happened after these three he's talking about here. So that would have been the fourth time he was shipwrecked if you count, because this was written before the end of Acts, when he was shipwrecked. Verse 26, I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, 
dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, and dangers among false brethren. You know, the really amazing thing about Paul is he was still alive. It really is. It's a miracle of God's grace that he, that he lived as long as he did. Yeah. So much for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> well, it, it really is a wonderful plan, but you have to see it through the eyes of providence. The wonderful plan is getting beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and hated and, and so on. But... Uh, <laughs> Good one. Now, this is a, this was a, a lot of this had to do with the simple fact of travel. Travel was exceedingly dangerous, and and the further you got away from the highly populated areas, the more dangerous it was. And one of the realities of the ancient world, I was reading the other day. I think I mentioned this. I was reading about what they call social bandits. And in the ancient world, these social bandits existed continually. And what they were were people that were displaced for whatever reason they lost, where they lost their land or whether they'd been taken over by some hostile force and they didn't want to be ruled by whoever it was that was the ruling power. And they were bands of people that would live in caves and hide in the wilderness and they'd and they would try to prey on whoever was coming by, particularly if it looked like if they were wealthy or they might have anything. And, and they would just sort of be like the Robin Hoods that were trying to uh, address their grievances by robbing whoever came by. And because they had lost whatever st- stable status they had as peasants in a village. So they were, the robbers were everywhere. Uh, Barnett says, once out in the country away from urbanized regions, private travelers, as opposed to escorted official parties, were vulnerable to the depredations of robbers. This was true even in the, uh, the area of greater stability provided by Pax Romana, that would be peace, Roman peace or prosperity. The, the poverty of life drove many to join groups of brigands, that's these social bandits, who ranged unchecked in many rural areas. Where times of acute food shortage coincided with times of political turmoil, as they did in Palestine during and after the late 40s on account of the Great Famine, the ranks of the brigand bands were swollen dramatically, assuming a political significance, especially if there was a charismatic leader. The same thing I was just talking about. Very common, very common phenomenon. And so their way of getting back at Rome was to rove around and rob people and make life unstable for the people around them. And that was their way of survival as well. And generally they were out in rural areas which protected them from being captured by civil authorities because it wasn't worth trying to find them. <laughs> they, were, they stayed in fairly small bands. This one book I was reading said 15 to at the most 40 in these bands or these brigands or social bandits. So traveling was dangerous because of the presence of these groups of robbers. And then, of course, there was the persecution, and wherever he went, dangers. He, calls, he talks about false brethren. Joanne, could you look up Galatians 2, 11 through 14? 
Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him in his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, like, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Okay, so the false brethren, as we've discussed before, there was a huge problem going on in Jerusalem. As we looked in Acts, remember, there were thousands zealous for the law and that James couldn't really keep control of them. And so some of these people came and said from James. Uh, I don't know if that implies with his approval. But anyhow, when they came, there was so much intensity about this issue that even Peter and Barnabas were carried away and broke fellowship with the Gentiles. See, eating together in their world was more than what it means to us typically. To eat with someone denoted fellowship, approval, reception, equality, and so on. And and it was a very important thing. So when these Jewish believers refused to eat with the Gentile believers, that was a terrible sin. It It was saying, you're not worthy for us to fellowship with. And it was breaking the idea of table fellowship. Now, in my sermon this morning, I'm going to talk about why it offended the Pharisees so much that Jesus ate with sinners. The reason was this what I was just saying. It meant that he accepted them into fellowship, and he accepted them as equals. And in, in, in these meals, eating with somebody was conferring honor to them. And they actually had to say that. Now, if you went to one of these um, Passovers where Carl explains the gospel in the Passover. Remember when, when somebody serves you, what do you say? You do me honor. You do me honor. So when they would come to a meal, the, the person that's invited to the meal would, would say things to the person inviting them, saying, I am honored. I, you confer honor upon me by having this meal with me. And they lived in an honor-shame society, so honor was the most important commodity, even more important than money. And shame was the one thing you wanted to avoid at all costs, because that was just how important it was. And so you come to the meal, you confer honor to me, and then uh, the, the one that, who invited the person will say, I'm honored to have you in my home for a meal. And so therefore, it was like being one. And so when we have the Lord's Supper, we're one because we're honored. The Lord has conferred honor upon us by inviting us to his meal. That's why it's called the Lord's Supper. I hope you read that, the the CIC we just sent out. Take the time to read that if you get it in the mail because it's all about this whole issue, okay, of these meals. And the thing that was sinful in Corinth was that they were shaming 
the poor. And that word is in there. Do you remember seeing that in 1 Corinthians 11? You shame. You, you confer shame. So that was a horrible thing. To be shamed is the worst thing that could happen to you in that world. And so by the people shaming people whom the Lord invited to his table, they were committing a sin that could lead them to come under judgment and damnation. That's how serious it was. Okay? That's why Jesus eating with sinners is so significant. I'm just a little preview. I'm going to talk about that in my sermon. So that issue in Galatia was really important because if Peter won't eat with the Gentiles, that's bringing judgment on Peter because it would say, you're not welcome at the Lord's table. And that's why Paul confronted him right there on the spot and said, no, this cannot be. Okay, now let's go on to the next verse, 27. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. So Paul would not allow anything, no matter how much hardship, to stop him on his mission to preach the gospel. Now, verse 28 is very significant. Okay, and I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. Apart from such external things. Now, looking this up in the Greek, it's evident that the New American Standard is a poor translation here. Uh, Garland argues that it should be something like not to mention other things. He's not make, In the Greek, Paul is not making any distinction between internal and external, and external is not there. It's not a good translation. Apart from everything else, would be the way of saying it, or not to mention all the other things. He's saying that this list is just illustrative, not exhaustive. Okay, so apart from the, these things and all the other things that happened to me, not to, then there's this one. Now, I think this was the greatest one of all. I believe this to be by far the greatest problem and issue that Paul had to deal with. All of those other things, all they could do if they succeeded, is just kill him and send him to be with the Lord. But having the churches harmed is worse. And that's why the epistles to Corinthians. There's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. I believe that, without a doubt, this is the greatest burden of all. The word for uh, uh, pressure uh, can also be translated anxiety. Concern, um, the responsibility for the oversight is what he has here. His sense of responsibility for the spiritual welfare of his churches stoked his anxiety. And if you look at uh, correspondence with the Corinthians, you can see that. He, his heart goes out to them, and they, they've turned away from him. And this is a huge sorrow. It's a huge sorrow for Paul. Because they were like his spiritual children, as he said in 1 Corinthians. And to see Satan having his way with people that you knew came to the Lord through the gospel is a terrible sorrow. Any of you who are parents and grandparents, if you ever experience a rebellious, wayward child, you know that that creates more sorrow than just about anything else that a person can go through. Absolutely. It, it, it tears your heart out. 
It, it causes you such sorrow that it's unimaginable. And Paul's concern for these ones that he had led to the Lord through the preaching of the gospel was as intense as that of any parent with a wayward child. And it's literally true that most any parent would do anything that they could do to change the situation of a wayward child. If you're a Christian parent, if you care, you would do anything. Absolutely you would. And the thing that kills you the most is there's nothing you can do. And that's anxiety. That's sorrow. And it doesn't go away. And if you're older and your children are 40, 50 years old, it's still the same. They're still your kids. So that's what that's all about. It's a huge pressure, huge difficulty, and it's something that really doesn't go away. And it's true for any elders or pastors to see someone going astray that you love and care for is a very sorrowful thing. Though giving Paul joy, the churches were the constant source of anxiety. Chrysostom is a guy in church history. And, and i got a quote here from him. In an insight of, of modern applicability, Chrysostom noted long ago that Paul says nothing here about results, about the number of his converts. He counts only the sufferings incurred in missionary labor to prove the reality of his calling. That's, why, that's also very interesting. It seems today that in order to prove one's status, you recount the number of followers that you have. In fact, it almost seems in the modern church that, that rather than leadership being defined by a set of character qualities that would be defined in the Bible, leadership is defined by the number of followers. And if someone gains enough followers, that makes them credible no matter what they have to say. All right? But here is Paul, who had founded churches all over Asia Minor and Achaia and Macedonia, and who knows how many converts existed because of his ministry, never mentions the numbers in order to gain any kind of credibility. He, he's more concerned about the numbers going astray. That's his concern. And I just heard a story, I just heard from somebody, I won't mention the exact names, but there's a guy who really has, doesn't have that much going for him. He, he's known for not good things for the most part, but he's very charismatic and supposedly has good doctrine and consequently has thousands of followers. And I just heard that he's being asked to speak at some event and because they want to draw a big crowd. And of all the people that you'd bring in to speak, this is the least. This is, why is having thousands of followers, why does that make you important? Why does that make you know something? Why does that make you a theologian? Why does that make you a preacher? I, I would say that, yes, 
somebody that has a big following may indeed be a very virtuous, great, godly guy. I believe John MacArthur is that. But it isn't the number of followers that makes him that. It's the gospel that he preaches. And I've never heard him talk about, well, look how many come to my church. I've never heard that. And so Paul's interesting uh, thing here is his concern is for their welfare. And shouldn't that be the case? Isn't it such that elders, and Paul is an apostle, should be concerned about welfare? Verse 29, who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? The word intense there, purao, present passive indicative, something that happens to him. The word parao means to be set on fire. All right? So if someone in the church that Paul cares about is going into sin, it sets Paul on fire. Passive. He doesn't choose this. It happens to him. Set on fire. That's how intense it is. This may be an issue here, the weak, who's weak without me being weak. It might be an issue of food uh, sacrificed to idols where the strong with knowledge trample the weak. Remember Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 10, some passages like that. In fact, let's look one up. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you do this? Do you have, you have a Bible? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 9.22. And then, um, Larry, could you do Romans 15, 1 through 3? To the weak, I, have, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Okay. So there would be certain liberties that Paul would have, like eating meat offered to idols. If, if it's not actually being said this is offered to an idol, he says you can, you can eat anything you want. And don't ask where it came from. Well, something like that. He says, whatever you find in the meat market, eat without asking questions for conscience sake. <laughs> yeah, you might want to ask where it came from <laughs> for uh, dietary reasons. But for religious ones, it doesn't really matter. Now, um, but he doesn't want to offend anybody or offend somebody's weak conscience. Um, I'm quoting here from Garland. Paul knows that anyone might fall, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, but the weak are particularly vulnerable. His anxiety for his churches is an expression of his godly jealousy, 11:2, which can flame into a divine fury. It makes him burn, inward, burn inwardly. There's that word, parao. In this chapter in 2 Corinthians, this chapter in 2 Corinthians testified to his burning indignation when he lashes out at the false apostles, deceitful workers, and Satan's henchmen, who would deceive and lead astray the Corinthians. Paul, however, reflects the spirit of a saint since his indignation is directed against those who would harm the faith of others, not against, any, against those who have physically harmed him. This concern for his charges is one of the true signs of an apostle. It is already explained in the letter that overcoming hardship is a clear sign that God's power is at work in him. It's not a definitive sign, however. Other persons have suffered terrible hardships out of Intense devotion to various causes. This is true. People will suffer hardship for satanic causes. Okay, They will give up everything for, for, for some evil cause like communism or, or something like that. All right. So you give your body to be burned. You don't have love. Paul said it's nothing. 
It is not a definitive sign, however. Others have suffered hardships out of intense devotion to various causes. Suffering for a cause does not automatically make a cause just or godly. Consequently, Paul switches gears. He would no longer boast of his success in overcoming overwhelming hardship, but will now boast in his weaknesses. And so it's interesting to Paul. I think Garland makes a good point. Though Paul, he was, he was whipped, what, five times with 39 lashes beaten, lashes beaten with rods, mistreated by this one, that one, the other one, and there was no burning indignation against those people. That's what he expects is going to happen as he preaches the gospel. But his burning indignation is against the wolves who devoured a flock, and his sorrow is for the ones who are being led astray by the wolves. So his care, more than anything else, is for the church and the people therein and their well-being. That is absolutely more important than anything else on his heart and mind. Okay, and so that's a good example for any under-shepherds. Romans 15, 1 through 3. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproached you fell on me. Amen. Then a quote from Barnett. Paul, Paul's question takes us back to his biting attack on their exploitation and the violation of the Corinthians. Verse 20, which he bitterly asserts, to my shame, we were too weak for that. 21a. Thus Paul's question, who is weak and I am not weak, declares his pastoral identification with and care for the weak in the churches, something that he elaborated in the first letter. Paul identifies with the oppressed and abused in the church and against those intruding false shepherds who exploit them. Here, paradoxically, Paul combines gentle pastoral identification with fiery indignation for the abused weak among God's people. Such passionate care is of a peace with the apostles' godly jealousy for Christ's bride-to-be. Remember that analogy earlier in the chapter? The Corinthian church, vulnerable to defection, deflection from, or defection from loyalty to her Lord. So he is the one who betrothed the church to Christ, and he's guarding her purity until the wedding. And the wedding happens later when Christ returns. But he's guarding her purity. And so his burning indignation, intense concern, parao, was for the well-being of the church. Verse 30. Verse 30. If I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness. Have to, day in the Greek, means it's necessary. It's necessary. So his ironic response to his adversaries to the false apostles, to the ones that harm the flock, is my weakness is my real strength. Why in the world would anybody want to take advantage of Christians? Why would somebody want to go into the ministry in order to fleece the flock or to abuse them? It happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Keith just said, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, but also pride of life. There's some motivation that's not from God. There has to be. 
Yeah, or they're deceived. Because the Holy Spirit at work in someone will give them a concern for the Lord's brothers and sisters in Christ and the flock and what have you. Church authority was never designed to for the aggrandizement of whoever has it. And you know the interesting thing? This was, uh, I'm sort of getting ahead of myself because my sermon is going to be about this. The Pharisees and scribes were murmuring because Jesus ate with sinners. And then the response to that is this parable of the lost sheep. And the implication is this, that they were the shepherds of Israel. They, they claimed the status anyhow. They claimed to be the ones who were in charge of Israel and were supposed to be looking out for the well-being of Israel, the leaders. And the lost sheep were lost on their watch. And they complain because somebody else comes and finds them. <laughs> All right. I've got to be careful. I don't want to preach my sermon ahead of time. I've got to save a little bit for upstairs. But, but the, the irony is amazing. How dare you go find these lost sheep? We want, we want to keep them lost. Yes. I'm just wondering, when they were told not to eat meals with the Gentiles... Was that from God in Leviticus when God put down all these laws? Or is this one of those rabbinical? Okay, let me, let me express that. The, the not eating with Gentiles was more of a function of the fact that they had the food laws. And they, they had to stay clean. Okay? And so the food laws kept the separation between Israel and the Gentiles. All right? Now... There was a reason. We've talked about this before. There was a reason for the separation under the Old Covenant because they needed to preserve Israel as distinct in order that Messiah would come from the line of Judah and that Israel would bring blessing to all the families of the earth. The food laws were done away with under the New Covenant for the reason that now God doesn't want separation. He wants us to go through the highways and byways and go bring in the lost sheep. And so if we can't eat with anybody because we got laws, then we can't bring them in. It's harder to bring them in. All right, yes. I was just going to say that the, yeah, the spiritual economy before Christ's coming was such that Daniel and his friends oh, yeah. were in, coming into the king's uh, palace, but they wouldn't defile themselves eating what the king served. And it was more than just having pork or not. Even if you had a clean animal, it had to be killed according to the proper way to be kosher. Right. So that when Paul is saying in the New Testament, go to the market and eat without asking questions, it was you could eat something that was unkosher, but if you were a Jew, you would have to ask questions every single time because you're only going to get it uh, <laughs> killed at a certain method to, to conform to the food laws. So the, the, just asking the questions would divide the people. Yeah. Yeah, so the Jews were absolutely forced to stay separate because they couldn't have table fellowship. And that's what kept them separate. Yeah, the, when we bought this, remember the kitchen here? And we couldn't even go in here when we owned, owned it. While we were sharing this, this with the synagogue the first six months, we couldn't use the kitchen because we'd defile their kitchen and they couldn't eat from it. So that, that, kept, that keeps a separation. It's hard to have any kind of table fellowship. Table fellowship is where people come together. <laughs> okay, so Paul's response to his adversaries is his weakness is his real strength. 
And then he, then he invokes God, who knows he's not lying. Verse 31, And God the Father, Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. It's interesting how Paul breaks out into benedictions in the middle of a sentence. <laughs> and this happens in Romans 11, too. When he, when he, when he, remember in Romans 11 when he's talking about the future salvation of Israel? And then he breaks into a doxology. <laughs> just a thought, it's like a thought comes to his mind. Go God the Father. And then he goes, oh, who's blessed? <laughs> God the Father, Lord Jesus, he's blessed forever. <laughs> so he blesses God in the middle of his little statement just to uh, where he's saying that you can know that I'm not lying because my conscience is open to God. Daniel, if you could look up Psalm 41:13 and Judith, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 5. And then that'll be it for this Sunday school. Yeah, it's, a, it's really, this whole separation thing is, is interesting to me. There are churches who create purposeful separation between them and everybody else, including them and all other Christians. And the way, the way you create separation, if that's what you try to do, and I don't believe it's biblical, we need to separate from sin. But the way they create separation is create a whole bunch of laws that purposely make everybody eccentric. Okay, And the more eccentric you make people, the harder it is for them to interact with anybody else around them. And so, in a a separatist church, the second you walk in there, you know you don't belong. Okay? Because everybody's got certain eccentricities about them that are immediately obvious. I I talked to somebody who who comes here now and tried to go to one of those churches, and he said, as soon as my wife and I walked in, we knew we were in the wrong place. Everybody looked the same and not like us. They're enforcing dress codes. They're enforcing uh, all kinds of these rules and laws that aren't in the Bible in order to create separation. Now, why is I think that's sinful. I honestly think it's sinful. It isn't even an option. You know why it's sinful? Because you don't want to evangelize anybody. You'd rather keep them outside the door than be defiled by the sinner coming into your church. Well, that's they were saying, yeah, well, it's like the Pharisees. The Phar- you know what the word Pharisee means? Anybody? Separate. The word means separate. And they didn't care. They didn't want those lost sheep found because they don't want to defile them. We don't want to be defiled by tax gatherers and sinners. And so Jesus was allowing himself uh, table fellowship with sinners. And then he gives these three beautiful parables the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. The lost son. You could call it the lost son. Okay, the verses. Go ahead. Psalm 41, 4, 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Yeah, there's a doxology or a blessing. Oh, speaking of the blessedness of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. God is the witness of Paul's motives. Okay. Um, We'll see you upstairs at 1030 and uh, have a time of fellowship now.